You're listening to Golf Yeah, your masterclass in the lives, lessons, and aspirations of people who've built successful businesses and rewarding careers based on their love for the game of golf. Whether it's the obstacles they faced, the success they've achieved, or advice they offer, Golf Yeah provides the motivation and blueprint to convert your passion for golf into a full or part-time endeavor. Or maybe you just enjoy hearing stories from people who know a hell of a lot about the game. Either way, let's start exploring the business side of golf with your host, Gordon Andrew. It might be an understatement to say that Jason Pearsall is hardwired as a golf entrepreneur. Since he graduated from college in 2007, Jason has either started or played an important role in a number of successful ventures both cutting edge and traditional, that he'll describe for us in his interview today. I've not spoken with him prior to this interview, but Jason appears to be the kind of person who generates more great ideas than he has time to do them. And I suspect that he's only just getting started as a business builder. Oh, and did I mention that Jason also has a law degree? That was something he was able to accomplish at the same time he was running his own technology startup. So, if you're starting to feel like an underachiever, even before we talk to Jason, here's something that might push you over the edge. I'll share with you a review that was posted on Glassdoor.com from one of his former employees at his uh, golf app company. I have forgotten where that company fits into his story, but he'll tell us. So, the former employee wrote, quote, Jason Pearsall is an amazing leader with both muscular intelligence and creative vision. His charisma is a major determinant guiding the company's success. Now, there was one negative aspect to his comments, because he wrote, Detroit is cold, perhaps move the company headquarters to Florida or California. So without inflating his ego any more than I already have, let's start by asking Jason that question. Jason, when are you going to get out of Detroit and move to Florida? And secondly, what the hell is muscular intelligence? I have no clue what muscular is to start. Thank you first for that very kind words, and also for the uh, employee, whoever uh, had said that. I appreciate both those things. To start, I actually did live in Florida for two years. My wife, who I met in college, uh, she's from the Gross Point area of Detroit, and she didn't like Florida very much. It was a little too warm for her, and more importantly, her family was up here. And you know, as you know, it's tough to get away from family, and so. After two years, we uh, we moved up from sunny Miami back to cold Michigan, but it's worked out okay for us. Okay, great. Listen, maybe you could start officially with your backstory, your early years, you know, including how and when you got started in golf and how, where that love for the game came from. You know, like a lot of people uh, in the United States, I come from a divorced family, and my father was a golf course manager. He worked on the food and beverage side of things, but it exposed me to maybe a life that, that I wouldn't have had. I, I wasn't a member. We weren't extremely wealthy. Uh, you know, we were middle class at best kind of growing up. And it gave me an opportunity to see another side of life. When your father, when you have family that works in the golf industry, anybody who does knows what I'm saying here when I say you just don't see them very much. You either go to the golf course and you see them. Yeah, so in the summers, you know, if I wanted to see my father, I was at the golf course and it ended up becoming, you know, the thing I looked forward to. And ever since then, I've always, at minimum, had a love for the game and I didn't really think that it would become my career, but I'm very happy that it has. Are you a good golfer? Do you play a lot? You know, I surround myself with PGAs who are, you know, scratch golfers. And I used to think that I was a good golfer, but I'm reminded and humbled, you know, every weekend when I try to get out and play with them, how 
much I have to improve. But I don't know. I'm somewhere around a five handicap. I'm a pretty decent golfer. I would swap with you any day. So talk to us about, you know, what has made you uh, hardwired as an entrepreneur? That Where'd that come from? I don't really think that I am. I think that I've always had a pretty hard work ethic. And more than anything, I just, if I'm going to do something, I like to do it well. And I'm very competitive by nature. So if I'm doing something, I'm always competing against somebody, either myself or somebody arbitrary out there. And so I've just kind of found myself involved in businesses. And if I am, then I'm going to, you know, do them well, I guess. And some of them haven't worked out and some of them have. And so all of them have been learning experiences. At the end of the day, I think that, you know, as I kind of get into the story of my first startup, you'll see that, you know, it was started out of desperation. Frankly, our first business was an e-commerce business. We sold computers. They were very high-end computers. Our clients were engineering firms and universities. And that started just because I thought, you know, I've got to build myself a nice computer, a fast computer, because it'll make me more efficient to do my work during school, of all things. And then, uh, you know, I worked all summer, I saved up and I built myself a computer. And then by the end of the winter, I think I was broke and I needed some money. So I had to sell that computer. And I sold a six month old computer on eBay for like $500 more than I had built it for. And I thought, you know, there could be a business here. Once a week, I'm going to build a computer. I'm going to sell a computer on eBay and I'll make 500 bucks a week. And that's how I'll put myself through college. And as I started listing those computers on eBay, we started, you know, selling seven, eight, nine of them a week. And then it became a website. And by the time that we were done, we were doing a couple million in sales while we were in college. And so my college frat buddies and I, when I say we, and, you know, I didn't really think that I wanted to run an e-commerce business. That wasn't my plan. My plan was to go to law school. So uh, shortly after college, you know, somebody offered me an opportunity to, you know, to, I guess, acquire what was called Performance PC then and sold it and kind of continued with the path of law school. So it was, you were more of an opportunist than a hardwired entrepreneur. Is that fair to say? You saw an opportunity and you kind of followed that path? Uh, yeah, I think, yeah, very much so. Let's go back a little bit. You went to Wayne State, both for undergrad and law school. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Okay. And you were on the debate team. You want to talk a little bit about that? Has that helped you in your career at all? Yeah. So I actually went to Wayne State because of debate and didn't join the debate team at Wayne State. When I was in, in high school, maybe a sophomore or so, I, uh, you know, I don't know, did the things that sophomores in high school do. And my parents, you know, caught me doing them and said, look, you've got an option. You can be grounded all summer or the speech coach called us up and they said that they think that you should join the debate team. And at that point in my you know, high school life, I thought I was way too cool to join the debate team. So I probably wouldn't have done it, you know, but for that experience. And so they ended up saying, you know, you know, I'll join the debate team. What does that mean? And they said, well, it means that we're going to send you to debate camp at Michigan State University for, you know, two weeks. And so by the time that I went to, you know, to Michigan State and I spent two weeks living in a dorm, you know, away from my parents, I guess, I had an option to stay for two more weeks and make it a four-week camp. And I did. And, you know, by the time that I was done in debate, I, you know, I had some success at the, you know, at the national and state level. I was a finalist in the state tournament and I think one of the top speakers in the state. So I got a, a full scholarship to Wayne State to debate. And that's what I did. What directed you toward law initially? Of all things, I was young and my grandfather told me that he always wanted to be a lawyer and that he never did and that I should. And so I was two or three years old and I said, I'm going to be a lawyer. And, you know, I still am a lawyer. I, I'm a licensed lawyer and I, I do do most of, the, you know, much of the legal 
work for our businesses, but you know, I think I'm probably right. I'm grown to accept that I'm more of an entrepreneur than a lawyer at this point. And you know, I guess it was important for me to accomplish that goal because I set my mind to it at a young age. But you know, it's probably less of my everyday, you know, job. I guess practicing law than is uh, building software. Okay. So your first true entrepreneurial venture, if I'm correct, was this app, this B2C app called Golfler. Can you explain what that is and how it came about and how you then left it or how it led to something else eventually, right? Yeah. Well, so the first was actually that performance PC. That was the e-commerce computer company. And like I said, I kind of started that in college with some friends. I actually one frat brother He's a chemical engineer now, so just a very smart guy. But anyways, that business, you know, we, we had a lot of success with it. And by the time that I sold it and I'd finished law school, I wondered if I had made the right move, right? I mean, I was looking for jobs and I had an internship working in the auto industry. And, you know, it was, I learned a lot of that internship, but maybe it wasn't what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And I was, you know, kind of regretting maybe that I sold this business. And so after law school, I practiced, I followed, I got a job at that company, I had an internship and worked there for a few years. And I had, you know, enough years of experience that I could leave and maybe still get, you know, a job somewhere else practicing law if I needed to. And so I saw an opportunity to build an app called Golfler, which at that time was an on-demand food and beverage delivery system for golf courses. It's simply just, you play golf and, you know, on your phone, you could say, I want to order beer and the cart attendant or the course would know where you were located and, you know, could route out that order to your phone's geo coordinates. And so, you know, that business eventually evolved into, you know, full golf course management software and has eventually become Club Caddy, to be honest. But yeah, it just, it just was an opportunity to leave, I guess, and to start something new. And I thought, if I don't do it now, I'm never going to. So I seized it. Who actually developed the app? Because are you a coder? No. Starting with the e-commerce business, I started working with us really just freelance developers out of India. I ended up meeting, you know, some that now I've worked with for the you know, over a decade and we've kind of built our own in-house team. So we do have U.S. developers that also build things, you know, build software that are located in the U.S. But the majority of our software developers are located in Mumbai, India. I believe it's you know kind of on the west coast of India. They're a very beautiful area. But they are, you know, much more cost effective. I don't want to say they work harder, but they work just as hard. And, you know, they're really like we couldn't do this without them. So they actually write the code and we kind of write the specifications and do the testing and tell them, you know, it needs to work like this, not like this and prioritize what gets done above what. Right. But I think that I more so project manage on the team than really build the, the software myself, if that makes sense. Okay. Now, what was the business model for the original golfler? I mean, how did it make money? If you were ordering food, at least initially, where was the revenue there? Well, there's an original idea of how it was going to produce revenue. And then there's the reality that it just didn't produce a bunch of revenue, right? And so we kind of had to pivot it. So the original idea for golfler, uh, which was the food and beverage app, is that every time a golfer placed an order, the golfer would pay golfler, our company, 99 cents, and then the golf course would also pay us a commission fee of 99 cents. So we would generate $1.98 per order. Now, it's not that that revenue model didn't work. It's just that the reality we found out was that not enough orders were generated at a golf course on a daily basis for us to support ourselves as a business, right? And so as we kind of started looking at, well, what's next? We've put, you know, at this point, several hundred thousand dollars in this technology in a couple years of time. 
we saw that there was an opportunity to build golf course management software. And the feedback that we had gotten from golf courses as we were testing Golfler, that was the on-demand food and beverage delivery app, is product's pretty cool, but we don't have it on all the time because we're not going to watch, you know, a web browser or a tablet. We have our point of sale and our T-sheet in front of us, and that those are hard enough to monitor. So we're not going to you know, leave our comfortable interfaces to watch another program. And so we realized, well, we need to build a point of sale and T-sheet if we're going to roll out this technology you know, and be successful with it and sell more orders. And then eventually the T-sheet and the point of sale became the primary products and the, you know, the on-demand is, or the food and beverage delivery portion is a nice product and a nice feature for the right golf course. But Club Caddy has kind of become the natural evolution of the original Golfler product. Okay. So just so I understand the sequence of events. So you had this Golfler app that kind of morphed into something larger than what you originally envisioned. And then you were acquired by a company called Supreme Golf. And then you stepped in as the interim president and general counsel at the company, or you released or remained in in the position you had. Maybe you can explain that a little bit. I was trying to decipher that from your LinkedIn profile. So Supreme Golf was primarily a business to customer, you know, business, I guess, right? So they sold tea times and what made them very unique and why they framed themselves as the world's largest tea time booking engine is that they had exclusive rights to aggregate tea times for several of the other largest booking engines. So they were kind of the Expedia of tea time booking engines insofar they aggregated Golf Now, Teeoff.com, Golf Book, Golf Zing, and, you know, several of the other booking engines that are used, you know, across the United States. So if you go to Supreme Golf, you're going to find an inventory of many more golf courses than you would find at Golf Now, because Golf Now only has the golf courses that they service. They're not going to have tee-offs courses, tee-off vice versa, won't have Golf Now's courses. So Supreme Golf has all of those things, right? So in this space of golf course software, there has been some massive consolidation. Four Reservations was acquired by Golf Now. In fact, you know, there's been some email publications. I don't know that these things are true, that, but that potentially Golf Now may be acquiring Easy Links and, you know, Forup recently merged with another company, to my understanding. And there's just all kinds of things that are happening in this industry that Supreme Golf was smart enough to recognize and, and had customers coming or golf courses coming to them and saying, I want to sell tee times through you guys. I don't want to use Golf Now. I don't want to use Easy Links. You know, how do I do that? And so they saw they needed their own software. So they set out to acquire originally Golfler, which was only a T-sheet and a point of sale at that time uh, to become their business to business kind of arm. And uh, so then I transitioned over as the, you know, the business to business kind of guy over at Supreme Golf. I became president over there. We had a lot of success with the product over just under two years. We were able to get into several of the largest management companies of the world. Those included American Golf and Century Golf and Hamptons Golf and, you know, Arnold Palmer Golf. And the software still is and was used, you know, all over the United States by several of those large, of those big management companies. I've kind of been going on this a little while. Is everything clear so far as to where we've gotten through Golfler to Supreme Golf? Yeah. Now, Golf Now is the gorilla in the course management software business. Is that accurate statement? Yeah, I, there's, you know, there are a couple, but I think that Golf Now is generally, uh, you know, they're financed by NBC and Comcast, and they have mainly by way of acquisition kind of acquired a majority, I shouldn't actually say majority, they have more market share than anybody else, but that is still, you know, very short of a majority. Okay. Do you know roughly what the market penetration is 
of courses that are currently using uh, course management software? Yeah, so in the United States, there are about 14,250 courses. And, you know, of those, I'm kind of speaking ballpark here, but maybe 8,000 of those are public courses and 6,000 of those are private courses. So our competitors are kind of broken between they have public course software and Golf Now and Easy Links and T-Snap, uh, Chrono Golf. These companies tend to service golf courses that are public. And then you have private course software, so Jonas Club. There's Club Profit. Some of these others tend to service only private golf courses. And there's a big difference between the way that those courses are run. And then, of course, what's happening in the golf industry today is that you see this hybrid where traditionally the private golf course model is failing and they're becoming more public. And the public golf course model also isn't having the same success. So they're selling what are called annual golf passes, which are kind of like memberships without reoccurring you know, monthly dues and things like that. And so these golf courses, there's no longer this clear distinction between public and private. And so all of our competitor software, I shouldn't say all of them, you know, they're, they're starting to adapt, but they're just not equipped to do both. And so somewhere along the way, I had an opportunity to invest in a golf course. I am a partner and uh, the managing partner of Flushing Valley Golf Course in Flushing, Michigan. And that was at that time a private golf course that, you know, had gone through foreclosure and they built this big 18,000 square foot clubhouse and spent millions of dollars to do that in the late 90s. And then a GM left Flint and all the members left and, you know, they were stuck here, right? And so uh, some private equity firms tried to keep it private. And eventually we came in and it was semi-private. They had members and we just kind of converted it to fully public with annual passes. And so our product had to fit our golf course and our golf course is very similar to most other golf courses throughout the United States that they've had to adapt, they've had to change and you know, make adjustments as the industry is changing. And, you know, so our software is helping courses deal with the way that operations work today. And, you know, maybe not 20 years ago, like many of our competitor software is, is equipped to do. Okay. I know you kind of glided past the fact that you became a uh, managing partner, owner, operator of Flushing Valley Golf Club. That was while you were still at Golfler, right? I mean, you added another spinning plate in the air there. I mean, Correct? Yeah. So a year into Golfler, you know, we kind of saw that having a home base would be very valuable. And so um, a group of partners were already looking to get involved in either the management or acquisition of a golf course. And at that point, I just kind of partnered up with a group that was already going down that path. And, you know, now, as I mentioned, it, it, this golf course used to be a private golf course. So the room that I'm sitting in now used to actually be the card room of a locker room that we've since converted into the office space that we run club caddy out of. But uh, it became our home base. I recognize spending my time here um, was beneficial for the software business. And, you know, since then, you know, we work with very closely the Flushing Valley staff as we build our software, you know, on an everyday basis, we're getting their opinion, you know, of how things should work, if how things could be done a little bit better, what problems they're having. We even test the software here before we roll it out, you know, to all of our other courses. So, but that Flushing Valley has become, you've got a number of moving parts there. I mean, you've got, you took a private club and you added a sports bar, a golf academy. I mean, you've really made it a I mean, I would imagine you have catering there as well. You do weddings and those sorts of things. Yeah. Well, so look, when we bought it, we wanted a golf course. And that was the reality. We're all golf guys. And we were building golf course software. And we wanted to buy a golf course. And just like everybody before us, we recognized we weren't going to make it here if we just tried to survive as a golf course. So the first year we were here, that we did about 16,000 rounds. You know, full transparency, our revenue was about 700,000. You know, we just bought, we were going to, 
the golf course would run itself. And, you know, within a couple of years, we quickly realized that wasn't going to be the case. And if we were going to survive, we were going to have to take, you know, a failing restaurant and food and beverage operation that so many other golf courses across the country are trying to deal with and turn that around. And so that involved a two-part operation, kind of taking the restaurant, updating that and converting that into a sports bar, and then, you know, building up a banquet operation and doing some renovation there to actually make it a place where people would want to, you know, have their weddings. So we put up a tent and we, you know, converted the restaurant to a sports bar and redid the banquet area. And since then, we have managed to increase revenue by more than double. And in some years, we're hoping to get close to triple. So, you know, most of our revenue actually comes from drink and not from golf now. And that's a big adjustment, you know, that we've kind of had to make just alongside the software has had to adjust. And so, you know, we were excellent on the food and beverage side and can do, you know, multi-room restaurants with room layouts and, you know, book banquets and weddings with very sophisticated event management software and event schedules. And so, you know, the software has grown to not just be a T-sheet and point of sale like it originally was, but really full golf course management software that, you know, manages every aspect of a golf course. Yeah. Okay. Can you talk a little bit about the history of Flushing Valley? And you have a course designer named Wilfred Ewart Wilfie Reed. I mean, I looked on your website, you have quite a history, and, and he has quite a story as well. So the course was, it's an 18-hole course now. The original nine-hole course that was designed by Wilfred Reed and a guy named William Conlon. Now, both of these guys were former PGA top golfers. I think Wilfred Reed's claim to fame was he built, beat Walter Hagen and maybe placed fourth in the U.S. Open or something like that. But they were uh, very, very good golfers after their, you know, their playing careers, maybe I don't know. They stopped having the same success on tour. They started building courses in, in the United States. They built the Olympic Club, Indian Wood, which is a very famous course here in the U.S., and you know several other courses, including a nine-hole track here at Flushing Valley. Since then, another nine has also been put in, and we've tried to stay, well, we didn't, but the designers who put in that nine tried to stay consistent with the original design. But yeah, they, I think, maybe done 30 to 40 courses, and we're proud to have a common recourse uh, here in Flushing. Now, the original land, from what I understand, was owned by the Indians? Is there a story about that? Um, yeah, there's, I don't know. You know there's, there <laughs> I guess all the land was owned by the Indians at yeah, one point. Yeah, at some point, right? And, and so there, there aren't, you know, records, there are rumors, and there are, you know, old <laughs> journals and things like that that we find. But the rumors were that there was a Native American group here that, you know, used to occupy the land, and there was actually a war here on the property. But we've found no artifacts or anything to suggest that was the case. Well, you're going to have to dig up the fourth green to find, uh, you know. <laughs> I'll let you know next time we do that. You can come out and help us out. What's next for you, Jason, uh, both personally and business-wise, you know, short and long-term? Do you have a bucket list of things that you'd like to do? I don't have a bucket list. And what's next is uh, something I rarely think about because I rarely think about what anything other than what's right in front of me. And so um, it would probably get me in trouble, you know, with my wife more than anybody else, but she would call Club Caddy my baby, right? Like, I work on this any moment that I have, you know, that I can, right? And so what's next is to build the best golf course software on the in, in the industry, which I think that we already offer, and to continue to improve it. And then once everybody knows it's the best and everybody's using it, then I'll maybe look at the next thing. But for the foreseeable future, this is, you know, what it will be. At some point, hopefully, I'm able to have some children in there, too. But beyond that, <laughs> okay. um, there are no other plans. Okay. Now, do you have a role model, either as an entrepreneur or a business person, that you kind of look to as a, you know, whether it's an Elon Musk or a Michael Dell? Or do, do you operate from that perspective? 
Honestly, I don't. Sorry, I probably should have told you that when I thought through who I would say. I even did some research to figure out who I could say to make sense, but I just... <laughs> Listen, if you have to think that hard about it, then the, I guess the answer is no, right? What you just said. So do you plan to stay within the golf industry in terms of whatever you uh, plan to do? I really feel that I, I would only get involved in something that I'm passionate about. And golf is, you know, been a passion for as long as I can remember. There are some other passions that I'm growing and I don't know, maybe one of them could potentially become a business. But, you know, I feel like if all you're going to do is work, then you might as well like what you're working at. And um, for me, I like working at golf. So I, you know, at this time, it doesn't seem like that would be the case. Well, one of the things that you've written that I've seen is that you like turning things that you enjoy into scalable business models. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, I think so. I'm also a little bit of an angel investor and that's kind of my test for investing. So if I'm going to put my money in, if I'm going to, you know, analyze if I'm going to put my money into something, then I feel like my time should be, you know, valued to some extent too, right? So why put your time into something or your money into something if it can't eventually pay you a return that's worth you know, worth a nickel and it, or more than a nickel, I guess. So to me, by scalable, I really just mean, can it grow into a business that eventually can support itself, can pay investors back, can, you know, take care of itself? And what are the risks or the challenges that are going to prevent it from continuing to sustain itself into the future and remain viable, right? So to me, the test is just, am I going to see an ROI on it? And what are the barriers that would prevent that ROI from really um, actualizing? Yeah. Now, your story is a bit unusual. Well, it is in several respects, but I find it interesting that you've found success both on the B2B side and on the B2C side. And so since you have perspective on both, you know, market segments, do you have any insights into or opinions on major trends within the industry that you think are important or meaningful over the next, let's say, five to 10 years? Well, you know, there's a loaded question within there. Um, so there's a lot of businesses along the way. And most of my success has really been on the B2B side. When it comes to developing software, we have had success on the B2C side, but not necessarily in the monetization of success on the B2C side. And so for me, you know, getting a bunch of downloads or getting people who give you good reviews or saying that you built good software is great. But if you don't make any money off of it, then that's not really a business. And so I have not had success building business to customer software. Um, all of that success has come into business to business. So initially, I would say, you know, I probably not all that confident to speak on the B2C side, but on the business to business side, well, there are a lot in there. I think that they're geographically based too. So in the United States in particular, I think that in the last couple of years, golf has gotten a, a reputation that maybe the industry is in trouble. And in some respects, it has been. One important thing to remember about you know 2019, and it was the same for 2018, is that there are more golfers playing the game today than at any point in history in the United States, but for about a five-year period from maybe 95 to 90, you know to 2000, right? And so during the period of 95 to 2000, the game of golf grew significantly, and while it was growing significantly, you know this kind of in Tiger Woods' heyday, you also had golf courses being built. And so simply in the golf industry, you have had an oversupply of courses and as the demand dwindled, that oversupply of courses also had to decline. And so, you know, we're kind of 20 years past 1999 and we're past the, the peak of golf. And what you see now is there have been several hundred, I think over five, somewhere between 500 and 1,000 courses in the United States that have shut down in the last 20 years. And you're continuing to see some more courses shut down every year. And that will be the case for a little while, um, just because there was too much supply. 
doesn't mean that the market's in bad shape. It doesn't mean that there aren't a lot of people playing golf. In fact, you know, there are 26 million golfers by, you know, the most recent studies that I've read, which makes more people playing golf than kind of any other game, or you could add all the professional sports together, the people who play, you know, golf, basketball, baseball, and hockey, and they don't add up to the number of golfers, right? So there's a ton of people playing. There's a ton of money that's going into golf. It's just you had an oversupply. Too many people built golf courses in the late 90s, and some of them have shut down. So I think what you'll see is that the reports and the industry analysis about the golf industry will all be you know, starting to look a little bit better in the coming years. And in 10 to 15 years, you're still probably going to see another couple hundred courses shut down. But those courses that are able to stick it out are going to be in pretty good shape. Yeah. Now, your Flushing Valley course, do you have a lot of competitors in the area? Well, one of the reasons that we acquired this course is that you have to drive eight miles, you know, to get to another golf course. You know, it's not, you know, eight miles by bird, but it is a little bit of a drive. And so there's not a ton of competition. There also isn't a huge population base. So in the immediate area and kind of our five mile vicinity, maybe there's 20,000 people, which isn't a huge population. In the Metro Flint area, you know, there's, I don't know, maybe 150,000 or so. And so we try to access that Metro Flint area a little bit, but really we're kind of, you know, the majority of our rounds come from people who live within six to seven miles from our course. And we're fortunate to not have another course within six to seven miles. Yeah, okay. Now. You didn't come up with an entrepreneurial role model, but do you have a source of personal inspiration in terms of what keeps you motivated, what you think about every day? You know, your parents are always the people who inspire you and instill the values. And my mother is the kindest person, the most empathetic person. She has a master's degree and a psychology background, and she has taught me that ultimately, you know, the people around you are only going to work as hard as they're motivated to work and they're only going to be motivated to work if you really care about them and show them that you care about them and listen to them. So I've learned leadership, I think, from my mother. My father has an incredible work ethic. He, you know, like me, can't sit down and always has to be doing something. So he, you know, is 65 years old. He had come out of retirement to work at our golf course and to help his son out, basically. And, you know, he helps out as our food and beverage director. And he is here six days a week for 18 hours a day. And I, I don't know wow. when I say that. He gets here at 6 and he leaves, you know, some days at 12 a.m. or 1 a.m. Or you know, he's walking around. <laughs> His eyes are squinting. You can barely see, it seems like. But <laughs> he wouldn't have it any other way. So they've definitely been my role models. And, you know, are, I'm eternally grateful to both of them. Okay. Now, my next question is kind of a smart-ass question. And you can pass on it if you like. But, you know, looking at your resume, it appears, and I know that it's, you know, we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg, but it seems like a lot of things have gone well for you in life. And I just wonder, what do you attribute your success to? And are there any things that you're not good at? Yeah, there's a lot of things I'm not good at. My wife would give you a laundry list of things <laughs> okay. I'm not good at. So, Mine too. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I won't get into that laundry list, but there's a lot of things. Also, I'm only like five, eight on a good day with shoes on, so I'm terrible at basketball and football. <laughs> but anyways, I've had a lot of luck. That's just the reality. I have, you know, I work hard and I surround myself and I have, you know, great friends who are always my business partners. And so I have surrounded myself with good people and we work really hard together and positively together. And, you know, usually I think maybe the debate background helped me to approach, you know, there's no such thing as an argument. There's only deliberation. And so as long as it's constructive and you're learning and, you know, producing a better idea out of it, it's encouraged and it's a good thing. And so, you know, we really don't argue. Uh, we really don't fight as a team. I can't even think of in three years, one time when that's happened, right? And so I think it's, you know, good people, people who work hard, and then 
just the company culture of being willing to iron out problems and to talk through things and not argue but deliberate has been very good for us. Okay. Do you have any advice for any listener who, you know, has entrepreneurial DNA and is thinking about pursuing some venture or career in golf industry? You do it, but you don't just leave your job and do it, right? I think that most people don't understand how difficult it is to start a business and more importantly, how expensive it is to start a business, right? And so, you know, if I could go back, I don't know that I would have left my job to to start Golfler. It took several years before, you know, we generated enough revenue to make it worthwhile. And I was fortunate enough to have enough runway saved up to, to get me through that period, right? But most entrepreneurs and a lot of the people I started that business with didn't and had to leave and had to go back to other jobs. And so, what you really need to do is, you know, whatever your idea is, you have to first validate it. Validating it is just showing that there's customers, there's businesses that think your idea is good and would actually pay for it. And that's the more important part. Will somebody pay for it? And, you know, kind of from there, once you've shown that people will pay for the product, it's really not that difficult. You get in front of a piece of paper and get out a pen and you start drawing out, this is how it's going to work and this is how it's going to, you know, I click here and it's going to take me to this screen. And that's how I started, pen and paper, just drawing out my ideas. And then, you know, get on Google and find somebody who says, I can do that for you for this cost and do some due diligence into them. Raising money is always the trickiest part, but there is more money going, you know, more venture capital and more angel money going out to startups now than there has ever been. And if you, you know, look, Google angel networks in your area, you will find investors. And if you have people who want to buy your business and you have sketches showing, you know, if you have people who want to buy your product and you have sketches showing, here's how I can actualize my product and make it real, the money is going to be there, right? So don't let money be the obstacle. It's only a matter of work and, you know, I guess that's kind of my advice and what my strategy was, but it seems like it's so difficult and it's really not. You just have to start somewhere. Yeah. Well, that's great advice. What am I not asking you that you'd uh, like to answer? <laughs> Are there any points you want to perspective on your career or advice um, for other people? That let's see. I thought your questions were awesome. I actually spent some time just you know, printing it out and reading through them and thinking through some of the answers. And I don't know that I gave the answers that I necessarily No, they were, they were great answers. And uh, I appreciate your time and your uh, insights. And I'm sure that the people that listen to this will uh, do the same. So thanks. Yeah, thank you so much too, Gordon. I look forward to watching. And if there's anything else that comes up between now and then, just let me know. Okay, great. Thanks, Jason. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Golf Yeah, featuring another success story from the business side of golf. Maybe it's time to get more serious about making golf the center of your life, not just the highlight of your weekend. Head over to GolfYeah.com for more great content, including show notes, testimonials, and links to valuable resources. That's G-O-L-F-Y-E-A-H.com. 